This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 339. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll there. When you enroll, you get a free class. And of course, you do get the best deals on new courses and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now, Southern Cultural and Intellectual History Part 1. Part 2 is coming up within the next couple of weeks. So you're going to want to be a member so you get the best deal when that course comes out. And if you're on my email list, you're going to get a good coupon for the current course that's out. So you want to be on the email list. You want to be at McClanahan Academy. You get the best deals. Of course, you can purchase one of those courses at McClanahan Academy. It's a great way to support the, support the show. You get a, g- a great course. I mean, there's 12 courses there. And uh, that helps keep this podcast free of charge. So you get good stuff, but you also get this free of charge as well. So it's a win-win for you. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights going, help keep the podcast going. Couple of lights on, podcast going. Get your book plates there if you want my autograph of one of my books. I've got a new book out, which Tom DiDorenzo graciously reviewed at lewrockwell.com last week, Southern Scribblings. You want to pick that up too. It's a great book. And of course, you can get my autograph in it if you get a book plate. You can also click on that shop tab at my webpage, get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to advertise the show and also support the show. You can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Another great way to support the show. So all kinds of great ways to support the show. And, of course, the best way is to rate this podcast, share it around on social media, comment on it, do what you can to help spread the message and grow the show organically. That's the way we're going to get more people thinking locally and acting locally. All right, so let's talk about the topic of the day. And I want to focus on... The president's actions last week when it came to executive orders. So we know that the president, President Trump, issued several executive orders. And I want to talk about the legality of this move. And I'm going to read an article from NPR, which is interesting. It says, since the start of last year, the president has announced three new economic promise zones. College Affordability Initiative and a Manufacturing Research Hub. These are all part of what the White House is calling a year of action. They're all things that don't require Congress to do anything, something the president makes a point of saying. I'm going to be working with Congress where I can to accomplish this, but I'm also going to act on my own if Congress is deadlocked. 
he said at an event last week. The mission is an economic one and something the president has talked about many times before, trying to make sure the economy recovery reaches everyone. The president is pressing for an extension of unemployment benefits. That doesn't require that will require Congress, but encouraging public-private partnerships doesn't. In a couple of weeks, we're bringing together more than 100 CEOs who are committed to hiring the long-term unemployed, which is a significant problem that still overhangs our economy. That's what the senior uh, president, senior advisor said. So these are the kinds of things that the president can do without legislative action. But long before he joined the administration, the chief of staff urged the president to use his executive authority to get things done. His recent hiring was seen as the sign the president would be taking more executive action. But using these powers is nothing new for this president, and others, or others for that matter. According to John Woolley, a professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, and co-director of the Presidency Project. He's by no means the first president to make a public point of the fact that he's doing that, and that's not the first time he's done it, Woolley says. Two years ago, the administration had what it called the We Can't Wait initiative, which also relied on administrative actions. But generally speaking, Woolley says presidents would rather have Congress pass their ideas into law than use executive orders or other similar actions. Presidents use it and have often used it effectively, but it's not as powerful as legislation. In response on Capitol Hill, this strategy is getting a mixed reception. I would recommend the president, he also has a constitution, an oath of office that he took, the House Speaker said at the weekly press conference. The Speaker said the president was choosing this approach rather than looking for ways to work together. There's no reason that this year can't be a bipartisan year to work on the issues of our economy and get Americans back to work, the Speaker said. While the Speaker's party sees this as another example of executive overreach, the other party sees this as an opportunity. He's been pushing for the president to sign an executive order raising minimum wage for employees of federal contractors. Right now, the federal government funds more low-wage jobs than Walmart and McDonald's. There are two million workers who work for federal contractors, and it's these people. And these people, there's no provisions that there be a responsible wage to be paid to these people. Of course, the White House offered no comment on the proposal, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you might have gotten the, the drift from this, that, again, from NPR, so we're talking about the president's executive orders here. So there's been one party saying that uh, the, the party in power is saying, well, I mean, or at least the president himself, this is what we got to do. This is all legal, all constitutional. The party not in power, is saying this is unconstitutional. Of course, the piece that I was reading came from 2014 when Obama, with his pen and a phone, signed a host of executive orders, and the Republicans, Joe Boehner, who was Speaker of the House at the time, said this is all unconstitutional. In fact, Joe Boehner issued a tweet that said, Mr. President, we use the Constitution to get things done. President Obama has a pen and his phone. We have the Constitution. I mean, this is how stupid American politics have gotten. This is six years ago, the Republicans saying the Constitution doesn't allow you to use a pen and a phone. Obama's doing it, but we got it. I mean, we can do this. This is all legal. Presidential historians, this is all legal. The Democrats, oh yeah, this is all legal, all legal. Now that Trump has done it, oh wait, wait, Democrats, so you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't use a pen to just do what we're what what Congress has to do. Republicans, oh yeah, we can because you're blocking everything. This brings up a very important part about and why I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, because you see, Trump is a symptom of the disease. 
Obama was a symptom of the disease. You know, as, as Woolley correctly points out, uh, presidents have been doing this for decades. This is the real problem. And this all goes back to Congress continually punting its responsibilities to the executive branch. See, Congress is part and parcel of the problem. And more importantly, the Constitution itself, the very structure of it, and the very nature of the general government is part and parcel of the problem. And I want to go back to John C. Calhoun and his disquisition on government. And now, saying that I'm going to go to John C. Calhoun is something that may get people rather upset. Because John C. Calhoun is always seen as a major problem in American history. And why is he seen as a major problem in American history? Well, because he's often seen as a defender of slavery. Now, that was the most... Uh, when you look at Calhoun's political philosophy, his, his, action, his talk about slavery, his discussion of slavery, his speeches on slavery, these were not unique. Anybody that knows the discussions about pro-slavery ideology knows that Calhoun was simply, simply echoing much of what had been said already in the North about the institution. So in that particular way, he is not unique at all. Where he is unique, however, and where he was a, a prescient thinker was when it came to the powers of government and what needed to be done to check power. You see, Calhoun understood. This is where Joe Biden was correct. The only thing to check power is power. You've got to have power. But what power do you have? Is it simply a numerical majorities? Numerical majorities are dangerous because what happens if you have 100 people and 51 of the people decide they're going to plunder the other 50? For whatever reason, that minority, which isn't really a minority, it's a minority by one, but it's 50 people. It's going to be abused by the 51. So we ju do we just simply rely on numerical majorities? Or do we have to look at something else? This is where Calhoun talked about what he called the concurrent majority. Now, I get into this in more detail in my forthcoming course, so I'm not going to steal all my thunder. I want you to take that course so you can get this in the reading seminar. But I want to read one particular section of Calhoun. Again, I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I want to read this again because maybe you didn't get that one. I want to read it again. He says, A written constitution certainly has many and considerable advantages but it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit the powers of the government without in investing those for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance will be su sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. So here we have in 2014, of course, Obama was president. We had a Republican Congress. So you could say that divided government was, was prohibiting the president from abusing his powers, but it wasn't. Here we are in 2020, we have a Republican president in a Democrat-controlled House, which controls the purse strings, but certainly the Constitution is not prohibiting the president from abusing his powers. And you look at the, what's being done here. I mean, you look at what Trump used executive orders, extending unemployment benefits. I mean, those things are unconstitutional anyways, but not just that. 
The fact the president is doing it, that's, that's spending, right? Uh, that's one of them. Of course, uh, making rules and regulations for you know, evictions. I've looked at the entire Constitution. I can't find the, I can't put my finger on the article that grants the general government and any branch that kind of power. Uh, or, you know, extending deferments for student loans. I mean, all these things are supposedly under the legislative branch, but the president's acting unilaterally. Obama was doing the same thing back in 2014, acting unilaterally. Now, you could say that this is needed because, of course, Congress wasn't doing its job. Well, maybe Congress was doing its job and not allowing the president to expand stupid legislation. Now, we know Congress passes stupid legislation all the time, so that's a fairly utopian view. I mean, this is all about politics, and Calhoun gets into that. Being the party in power... In possession of the government, I'm sorry, they will from the same constitution of man which makes government necessary to protect society be in favor of the powers granted by the constitution and opposed to the restrictions intended to limit them. As a major and dominant party, they will have no need of these restrictions for their protection. The ballot box of itself would be ample protection to them. Needing no other, they would come in time to regard these limitations as unnecessary and improper restraints and endeavor to elude them with the view of increasing their power and influence. So he's talking about the majority party, which you could say is the Democrats. I mean, look, numerically, the Democrats are a majority in the United States because of their appeal to Santa Claus initiatives. And so Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. I don't think the Republicans are a majority, numerically. And the Democrats continue to try to appeal to, say, you know, new immigrant groups to vote for us so we can give you things, so that's going to increase their numerical majority. This is what they're trying to do, relying on numerical majorities, and it's a razor-thin numerical majority. Even with Obama, and who won the popular vote and the Electoral College vote, it wasn't a huge margin of victory. I mean, these weren't landslide numbers where you know, Mitt Romney only got 30% of the popular vote. Romney got close to 50%. So you're looking at very slim numerical majorities. Do we allow the slim numerical majority to plunder the numerical minority? Whatever that minority may be. And the thing about this, I remember having a conversation with someone years ago, and I brought up you know, Calhoun's wanted to protect minorities. And this was an African-American man. And he said, yes, that's what we need to be doing, protecting minorities. See, Calhoun's government... His vision for government was to protect minorities of all kinds, right? So you can apply this to today if we have minorities for whatever reason. So what Calhoun's position was is the current concurrent majority, and I'll give you it, just summarize it in basically one sentence, that the minority could veto the majority's will and that therefore they would have to concur on whatever majority legislation you would have. And so that would be the real majority, the constitutional or concurrent majority. One entity could veto it for the whole. The minor or weaker party, on the contrary, would take the opposite direction and regard them as essential as their protection against the dominant party. He's talking about constitutional restraints. And hence they would endeavor to defend and enlarge the restrictions and to limit and contract the powers. Where there are no means by which they could compel the major party to observe the restrictions, 
the only resort left them would be a strict construction of the Constitution. That this, a construction which could confine these powers to the narrowest limits, which the meaning of the words used in the grant would admit. To this, the major party would oppose a liberal construction, one which would give the words of the grant the broadest meaning of which they were susceptible. It would then be construction against construction, the one to contract and the other to enlarge the powers of the government to the utmost. But, what, but of what possible avail could the strict construction of the minor party be against the liberal interpretation of the major when the one would have all the power of the government to carry its construction into effect and the other be deprived of all means of enforcing its construction? In a contest so unequal, the result would not be doubtful. The party in favor of the restrictions would be overpowered. At first, they might commend, command some respect and do something to stay the march of encroachment, but they would, in the progress of the contest, be regarded as mere abstractionists, and instead, indeed, deservedly, if they should indulge the folly of supposing that the party in possession of the ballot box and the physical force of the country could be successfully resisted by an appeal to reason, truth, justice, or the obligations imposed by the Constitution. Now think about that. This is what's happening now. They're, they're appealing to reason, to these things. Hey, there's reason. we got, we got to have these. we got to limit powers. That's essentially what I'm doing here. Reason. Please do this. We don't have any power, though. This is where Calhoun's saying we've got to have some teeth in this thing. For when these of themselves shall exert sufficient influence to stay the hand of power, then the government will be no longer necessary to protect society, nor constitutions needed to prevent government from using its powers. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the Constitution, either by the undermining process of construction, where its meaning would admit of possible doubt, or by substituting in practice what is called party usage in place of its provisions. Or finally, when no other contrivance would subverse, subserve the purpose by openly and boldly setting them aside. But the one or the other, the restrictions would be ultimately annulled, and the government be converted into one of unlimited powers. So Calhoun predicted this when he was writing his disquisition. This is what we're going to have. Party usage, right? I mean, we have parties now. When the one party's in power, it's all for broad interpretation of the Constitution. The other side is against it. Flip it, and it's the same thing. It's party usage. This is the great problem of political parties in the American political process, in the American government. Party, parties, parties. You see, if you, if you criticize Donald Trump, you're called a liberal Democrat. If you criticize Barack Obama... Even if you're on the left, you're called a conservative. I mean, this is, or you're called a Republican. This is how stupid these things are. So there had to be some other check. Well, this is where Think Locally, Act Locally comes in. You see, what should really happen here? And I mean, the presidents have been doing this now for decades. They've been doing this. Calhoun was pointing this out in the 19th century. This is what was going to happen. As presidents abuse power, as Congress abuse power, as the general government abuse power, what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? The 10th Amendment really has no teeth, so his idea was the concurrent majority. Well, in reality, what you do about it, and this is what the founding generation did about it, of course, is legitimacy. The government has legitimacy because we pay attention to it. But what if you started focusing your legitimacy somewhere else? What if you took your legitimacy and you said, all right, look, this government is now legitimate. You have no legitimate power. Now, we know that by force, it's a very hard thing to do because the government can enforce its decrees, its laws, by using the police power. But you see, this has to happen from the ground up. This has to happen through education. It has to happen through things like this, where we say, okay, uh, we're going to start paying attention to local. The president's going to abuse power. It doesn't matter who's in office. The president's going to abuse power. 
So you could say, well, we need to control the presidency, but let me tell you, there's not much hope if you're on the right to control the presidency very often. Because uh, the, numer- the numbers are not on your side, right? I mean, look, the wave is coming of the, the numerical majority simply controlling the entire apparatus of the general government. Now, if that's the case, we're going to see some pretty dark times, I think. If you're looking at the idiots who are running around representative of the new wave of the left. And these people are morons to the highest degree. But uh, if we start thinking now about decentralization, this is why I've promoted the Tenth Amendment Center. The Tenth Amendment has no teeth unless people give it teeth, which means you have to ignore unconstitutional federal laws. It's ignoring them. This is exactly what the founding generation did. If you go back and you look, they were using nullification. They were just ignoring federal laws, which essentially is nullifying them. Or I should say, you might consider federal laws because they were coming from parliament. There was a federal structure there. It's Jack Green. They were ignoring these laws from the parliament in Massachusetts, in Virginia. This is what they were doing. This is the Suffolk resolves in Massachusetts. This is what Virginia was doing when it talked about uh, not enforcing some of the rules that the British had established, the Parliament had established in the state of Virginia. They were nullifying parliamentary decrees because they considered them illegitimate. They had their own representative assemblies. So this is what you almost have to do, right? I mean, this is, this is where from the ground up has to work. From the bottom up, from the grassroots, it's called. It has to work this way. The president is going to continue to abuse power until something happens where people just start ignoring it. The Congress will continue to abuse power until something happens where the states start ignoring it. Now, the left can get away with this more than the right can. We see it. We're seeing it right now. Uh, But who knows? I mean, when when Obama and and, uh, Kevin Goodsman put out a, a social media post where he said, hey, look, Tom Woods and I talked about when Obama created the uh, Dream the Defer- the Dream Act, or whatever it was, DACA, when he created DACA, uh, that just created out of thin air. Another president could do the exact same thing. Well, this is what's happening. Once you get these powers, they're never squeezed until something squeezes them, and it has to be the creators of the institution, which is the states, to do it. So, When Trump runs around saying, I can do this, he's not incorrect in that other presidents have done it. And so what's going to stop him? Obama did it. George W. Bush used unconstitutional actions as president. So did Bill Clinton. So did George H.W. Bush. So did Ronald Reagan. They all did it. So did Jimmy Carter. Gerald Ford. Richard Nixon. I mean, they all did it. You can go all the way back into the early 20th century and find where this begins, which is why I chronicled that again in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. So, Trump is just part of the disease. The solution to the disease is thinking locally and acting locally, working from the ground up, finding legitimacy. That's an important term in government. Who has legitimate power? If you stop granting it to the center, then... When you start looking at things, you would have legitimate power. Jefferson said this. 
legislative power is incapable of annihilation because the people at large have it, and you have it. You are the legitimate power in your state. And that's what we have to start thinking about. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. Hope you enjoyed this one. See you then. (laughs) 